bum-bum To the virtual hangar Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum They gather once a week Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum To talk in aircraft speak Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum Rum-pum-pum-pum Rum-pum-pum-pum Uncontrolled airspace Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum GA Podcast Little Davy Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum Likes to run his mouth, pa rum pum pum pum. Jeb has the gift of gab, pa rum pum pum pum. Quite much to Jack's chagrin, pa rum pum pum pum, rum pum pum pum, rum pum pum pum. They have pa-rum-pum-pum-pum They do not sing What you hear today Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum Sounds like a way to fly Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum Do not pay too much heed, ba-rum-pum-pum-pum. Recall what you have learned, ba-rum-pum-pum-pum. Rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pum-pum-pum. Fly the airplane, ba-rum-pum-pum-pum. You knew that You knew that, 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 you knew that. Would you have in your own plane or have an access to it? Would would that have made much of a difference? And it's like not much. At least not Saturday. Not really. No. You know. Yeah. Uh I don't even think a no-nicing airplane would have made a difference to me that day. It, it doesn't really matter, no-nicing, non-icing, whatever. Uh, you still have to have a place to land. And if well, that was it. On the runways, um, what are you, you going to do? They weren't keeping up. Uh, well, no, yeah, they weren't hang on. Up. Let's come back to this. This is more interesting than I thought it would be. So let's yeah. come back to this. We, we will talk right. about the weather. Why don't we start with it? Um, start with it? No, we're talking about this silly story. So, uh, we are all silly. We met the uh, we met the uh, the uh, what do they call it the uh, the uh, UAV the uh, uh, the drone. What was it? what's it? at Oshkosh? We met the guy, right? What's the name of the yeah. predator? We, the predator drone. Yeah. All right, we met the predator drone guy, and uh, basically nice guy, interesting was technology. It, we were was kind it of, Will who who I think 
It was either Will or Tupper who who gave it the uh, shall we say the signature salute. Yes, I think um, it was Tupper. Tupper's. Yeah, I think it was Tupper. Tupper's definitely yeah. not a fan. But um, but but so it's you know I mean all Tupper's concerns aside, which are are largely legitimate concerns. It's an interesting mm-hmm. piece of technology. I think it's kind of like you know the the world's coolest RC controlled airplane, um, and the yeah. guys who are manning and it, it has guns. What's, yeah, that's right. Now it's got guns. It has, uh, it has weapons. You know. So, but we're talking to the guy, and we're trying to back him into a corner on the whole subject of you know what happens if something goes wrong. All right, you know, and and his basic answer is you know things aren't going to go wrong. Get all these backup plans. All right. Well, it turns out that there are some flaws in this thing. All right, because the uh, let's see. You know, according to a story in Wall Street Journal Online, um, militants militants in Iraq. Uh, have used $26 off-the-shelf software to intercept live video feeds from the U.S. Predator. They have actually hacked the military's, you know, kind of preeminent UAV. So how, what does this do for our, our, our level of confidence in this thing? Well, it should raise well, the residual rate. Uh, <laughs> it just increased the audience considerably. And, you know, residuals are based on audience. Uh, so this could actually become a, a positive cash flow thing for the Defense Department Treasury <laughs> if they can think, enforce it. I think it, also, uh, you know, if if they would think about this a little bit, you know, think take this to the next level, if they actually made this available, like on a pay-per-view basis perhaps, um, we could watch real time. Yeah. As as they blew up stuff over in the sandbox and and uh, uh, you know maybe at least it certainly wouldn't balance the Defense Department budget but um, certainly you know buy some more jet fuel or something. Yeah, there's little doubt that this would be one of the most popular channels on cable or on the internet. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, until in, until you kind of droned in. Oh, sorry, bad choice of <laughs> yeah, words. Okay. Until you kind of homed in. Maybe that's not a good word. Until you kind of like figured out that there's a whole lot of it that could be edited out and then put in a once a week episode of MythBusters. Uh, yeah. And that. you know, can you really hack into a drone's video? Uh, well, let's see. And uh, oh no, uh, turn it off. That's our our roof that they're homing in on. I don't want to see that. Wait a second, that looks really familiar. Mildred, Mildred, <laughs> come here and look at this. <laughs> let's go out and wave. Hey, they're uh, getting the neighbors now. Cool. <laughs> I wonder if they'll get the ones with that barking dog. Uh, that loud motorcycle. You guys so, aren't so taking I, this very I, seriously, all right? This there. is a big deal. Well, the bad guys have. Have hacked into our system. Oh my gosh! Well, let's, let's let's be clear what we're talking about here. First of all, um, what they were able to do is download or or tap into, shall we say, the feed from the um, the Predator drone. Um, presumably, um, you know, we don't know what was what was viewable. Uh, there's a data stream, but that doesn't mean uh, that they were able to take control of the drone. Uh, yeah, that's a different. That they were able to take you know, to, to to look at the downloaded video or or plot the drone's position or anything like that. Um, the the other thing going on here is that normally all of this data coming from the drone is is uh, encrypted, duh. Um, but it was not encrypted on on certain flights because um, the the the, uh, the U.S. military officials who were running the missions wanted to make it available to people who did not have the appropriate encryption apparatus, which is 
really, really close to the the pay per view kind of thing. Yeah. Um, who they were, what the, why, why they needed this is is one issue. Why they decided to de-encrypt the uh, data uh, just so those individuals or individual could see it is is another uh, question. Uh, I bet they won't be doing this again real soon. Yeah, until until some other weakness in the system is. Well, is, there's is, always a weakness in the system. That's it, my point. It, it, every, Every system design has a weakness. Yeah. And so it brings us back there, to our original conversation think, of what uh, happens to this thing when it, it loses this, calm. This, this, this wasn't a weakness of the, of, of the system, per se. This was a weakness of the decision-making process. Well, no. Weaknesses or, in uh, systems you know, are, also, are always a failure of the decision. It's always human error. Any, anything. No, no, once in a while, it's, it's where they've actually encrypted something to protect it, and somebody really clever who gets more than 26 bucks uh, is able to crack it and, and make the information available to people who shouldn't have it. Uh, this is an entirely different level of that. Uh, pictures, um, you know, that, that, this is not a good thing. I'm not saying that. Uh, first, it's not taking control of the drone, which would be a real major lapse. Actually, I think it is a good thing. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because it, it shows, again, the folly of trying to use so much technology um, <clears throat> in, such a, uh, in such a way. Um, and, and we think, well, you know, this is rock solid. No one can, no one can grab this video feed. No one can, can, can intercept this data. Well, that's, that's bogus. Of course they Thank can. You. Even if it's encrypted, they can, in, they can intercept it. Um, and it's just a matter of time before someone breaks the encryption. Well, they've done a really, from from at least from what we know, they've done a really good job of protecting the data stream that comes down from our intelligence satellites, who are you know capable of getting license plate like detail off of small areas from very high up in space. Uh, and I imagine that there's some technological uh, reason why. They're not using something similar to that. Maybe they are on the drones. It all comes down to the decision, you know, as Jeb noted, to not uh, normally encrypt the data stream on these missions so other people could see it. Other people saw it. So some of them planned and some of them uh, yeah, right. not planned. It's a good thing that we know now. And uh, I understand that's really basically because of boots on the ground that captured some notebook computers that had the videos, copies of the video from the uh, from the drones. Oops. Well, you know, good for our guys that they got slap yourself on the forehead. That, oh my gosh! Look and and found this right. So at, at least now we know. Yeah. Anyways, uh, which again brings back what Jeb talked about relying so heavily on technology. When uh, uh, this technology wasn't protected appropriately uh, for those ones that were intercepted, uh, it seems, uh, they got intercepted, but guys on the ground doing the hard work, you know, the hard work, the heavy lifting of whole, this whole thing, caught some bad guys and were able to uncover it. It may not have been what their goal was at the time, but at least somebody was paying attention. So that's a good thing. Now we know. Now yeah, we know. Well, okay, I guess this wasn't as much of an aviation story as I thought it might be, but uh, it's got wings. So it's, it's, a, it's a geek story, and, and for those of our listeners who are into that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, All right, well, there you go. Well, let's look at it as a pilot-in-command parable. Uh, okay, uh, how so? Uh, well, you know, I look at it as tantamount to deciding to leave uh, 
a major safety system behind on the ground and then being surprised that the lack of that major safety system causes things to fall apart for you. Yeah. Uh, do- there's a there's an emerging story over the last week or two out of Canada. Yeah. Where a uh I think it was a Malibu Piper Malibu crash shortly after takeoff killing uh, a, a fairly well-known businessman his son apparently had been killed in a plane crash uh, a few months earlier or later, I forget which, but um, the uh, pilot, the airplane had a known defect. In other words, uh, um, the maintenance personnel and the operator knew that it had a bad attitude indicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the pilot was who, who was the operator. He, he obviously knew about this, um, whereupon he decided to go ahead and launch into IFR conditions. 857 pounds over gross. Oh, oh, man. Five people, full fuel, and Malibus are notoriously uh, limited on useful load anyway. Yeah. Launched into IFR conditions, 857 pounds over gross. And he started out known, partial panel. With a known bad AI and got did not get very far. And, and to, to, to the demise of everybody, I take it? To the demise of everybody on board. Um, and you kind of have to sort of stop and ask yourself, you know, how lucky do you feel today? Uh, launching with a known uh, bad AI is one thing on a VFR day. It's quite another on a, on a stone IMC day. And then, you know, I, I would I would guesstimate that it probably wasn't the first time he loaded a bunch of people in the airplane and, and kind of sort of didn't pay a whole lot to, to the overgrowth situation. <sighs> Where do you draw the line on that thing? I mean, you can't fix, you know, I'll probably get sued for saying this. As Ron White would say, you can't fix stupid. Uh, And and my biggest objection to that kind of decision-making stream comes in, if you want to do that to yourself, all by yourself. Knock yourself out. Please, help yourself. Knock yourself out. Purify the gene pool. Apply a little chlorine. But it's when you do that and it involves other people that, in my mind, it goes, you know, it, it it goes over the top. It's just, and, and, and if you're departing Hidden River in that condition, please take off to the west. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 165 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Monday, December 21st, 2009, just a few days before Christmas. And uh, it seems like we did the episode, it was six days ago we did an episode, it just seems like the other day, I don't know. Time flies when you're... Maybe it's because the one before that was like almost two weeks, maybe that's what it was. But uh, Time flies when you're having podcasts. There you go. Well, while the trains are coming in here, let me say hi to my friends uh, here in the virtual hangar. Doot, doot, doot. I'm never sure how well you can hear that. I can, I can hear, hear that. fine, thank you That's much. the... Uh, I always, I I always call it the nor'easter. It's called. It's not the nor'easter. <laughs> it's the downeaster. <laughs> it's one of the most successful trains in America. Passenger trains in America. It's it's wildly popular. It goes from it's Boston broke. to Portland, Maine, by way of the world headquarters in Dover, New Hampshire. Joining me here in the virtual hangar this evening, uh, two of my good friends, uh, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing tonight? I'm well. I'm well, Jack. Thank you for asking. Um, um, You've been having any fun lately? Yeah. You know, I just spent the weekend just taking care of projects and uh, feel a lot better for it. You know, stuff that was just kind of hanging over my head and uh, got a lot of stuff done. So I feel good about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looking forward, forward, I should say, to the holiday coming up. Yeah. Did Uh, you get much snow? 
<laughs> we did not get much snow. That storm just went kind of right past us. I saw um, one account that say um, that the storm actually began down there. Did you get some rain? No? We we get rain off and on all the time down here. This is, a, this is the I think, the wettest place on Earth yeah, as far as I'm concerned. But they said that the system started down there in southern Florida and then <clears> turned to <throat> snow in Jacksonville. It started in Jacksonville. That's a whole different part of the state. I see. Okay. All right. And also joining us here this evening in the vir virtual hangar is Dave Higdon. I take who's, no responsibility. Who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you? Uh, just ducky. Uh, and it hadn't been raining. Uh, we haven't had sixteen hundredths of an inch here all month, so uh, so you didn't get any snow either. No, no, we got a a, a dusting very first week of the month, uh, and it was so fine that my micrometers wouldn't measure it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, um, normally I try and minimize the weather talk because some people don't really appreciate it the way we all do. But uh, um, mm -hmm. before we started recording this evening, we were chatting a little bit about the, this big snowstorm that just passed through in the last few days and, uh, and, and, and a couple of the ramifications of it. And it actually kind of it became an interesting uh, general aviation conversation. David's story starts out with the fact that the uh, lovely Annie was trying to travel from Wichita to a uh, family in Washington, D.C., and got trapped. How long did it take her to get from Wichita to uh, D.C.? A little over 60 hours. Six uh, zero. Six zero hours, yeah. yeah. Uh, from getting on the uh, airplane. Well, if you roll it back from the original flight time, uh, the original flight time was 6.30 in the morning, which got bumped the night before as the storm was moving into D.C. to 7.20, which got bumped to 11.20 which eventually left at, uh, I don't know, 12.30 or so for Dallas. And then uh, Annie got to uh, uh, do a uh, traveler's assessment of two different hostelries, uh, one Saturday night, one Sunday night, and finally got an airplane out of uh, DFW today and landed at uh, Washington National Airport uh, right about... Uh, 2.15 local time today. So, Man. I, I was feeling bad for myself on a couple of recent trips. That's brutal. That's yeah, brutal. That's, that's just unconscionable. The question you, you, is... She could have driven it faster. Yeah. The, 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 where this becomes kind of interesting in a general aviation sense is, uh, you know, we always uh, are crowing about how general aviation is, on the whole, a better way to travel than the airlines. But, David, you apparently are, are of the opinion um, or of the fact that, uh, that this wouldn't have been better in this particular case. Well, uh, yeah, for the most part, no. Uh, it wouldn't have been better. Uh, you know, I might have been able to pick a, a, a better place to strand, get stranded than DFW or to come up short of my destination if it was anywhere between, uh, I don't know, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, Boston, uh, and west to the Blue Ridge and up into the uh, White Mountains. Uh it was just coming down so hard at times they couldn't keep up with uh, uh, plowing the runways. Uh, you couldn't get in even if they'd been able to keep up because of the visibility levels when the snow intensity got up to an inch and a half, two inches an hour. Uh, you know, you didn't have 100 feet of visibility, let alone uh, a 200-foot ceiling and, you know, uh, half a mile or a quarter mile, something like that. So it closed down airports up and down the eastern seaboard, uh, closed down the major air carrier airports, which are generally better prepared 
than your average GA airport to handle a major storm. Uh, I know some airports that will be dependent on pretty much a, a, a solar thermal solution before their air runways are completely clean, unless their you know, town uh, followers see fit to break a truck loose with a plow from plowing streets. So mm-hmm. A lot of that will depend on um, which of the city fathers have airplanes at the airport. That's true. How far south do you have to go in the United States before airports really don't have a, a real snow removal capability? For example, I'm, I'm imagining Sarasota doesn't have snow plows. That's an yeah. extreme case, all right? Um, do, Atlanta probably has something in the way of a program. I know, you know, in, the, in my memory, it snowed in Atlanta, and, and much more frequently does Atlanta get what I would call an ice storm. Yep, um, yep. They get freezing rain, and the, and the temperature is below freezing. Um, I'm not aware of a like a major snowstorm hitting Atlanta. Although years ago, when I when I lived in South Georgia, we did get snow once, um, and I was the only one who knew how to throw snowballs, so I won. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, just look out; the cops will come after you. Their guns drawn. That's another story. Yeah. Together. Well, oh uh, yeah, that's that's another whole another thing. If we were if we had a political, uh, we, we don't have a political uh, podcast. But, that's right. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, our, anyway, um, Dave's right. I mean, I, I was paying attention earlier today um, to uh, some of the traffic on the DC pilots list that I've talked about before, and you know, a lot of people. Well, I guess I'm not going flying this weekend, and it's kind of like, well, dude, you ain't going flying for a couple more days because uh, the airport at which you're based hasn't plowed the runways, the taxiways, or whatever. I found when I was based at uh, Manassas for a few years, I had a north-facing hangar, which was a bad, bad idea most bad of the time. Bad thing. Bad thing. Yeah. Uh, so what happens? And I had a, a, a bifold door. It, it it came up from the bottom and it folded, and um, um, roll the roll the airport or roll the airplane in yada yada yada. But what happens? Um, you you start pulling the air the the hangar door up and whatnot, and and it dumps some snow. Uh, you can certainly get the hangar door up and down without having to uh, to do anything as far as the snow out in front of the uh, um, out in front of the hangar is concerned. But what happens is, first of all, the plows come by, and where do they put the snow when they plow the taxiway? There, they, of course, they put it right in front of the hangar, just like uh, your driveway the, at home. Yeah, just a little berm right there in front of the hangar. Now, if they're really conscientious and have the time, they'll they'll uh, come back through very carefully and run the edge of the plow right up next to the hangar door and, and try to miss everything. And usually they do a pretty good job. But there's still some moisture there on the ground, and the, the, the snow on the roof of the hangar melts during the day, and it falls down as liquid water, and overnight it, it freezes, and then you've got this nice little sheet of ice uh, out in front of the hangar. And I had taken to uh, salting that when I had the opportunity, and, and it, it, that worked fairly well. But, of course, being a north-facing hangar, we didn't get the sunshine right. uh, during the day on that, that part of the taxiway right out in front of the hangar. So it, it got t- uh, testy, shall we say, on several occasions. <laughs> but, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. I've never flown through snow. I know people who have, and, and I wouldn't hesitate to do it if the conditions were right. Conditions being you know, no chance of, of liquid precipitation forming on the airplane. Um, and that, that in itself wouldn't, wouldn't bother me. What would bother me, of course, is low visibility. 
and um, whether or not the uh, the runways uh, and the taxiways were were usable. Um, the length of the runway, the type of approach I'd have to make, all of those different variables factor into this. And uh, you know, if I'm smoking down a an ILS at at 100 knots or something, and I've got to land on a 3,000 foot snow covered runway, I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm not sure that I can. You know, I probably can get down and stop, but you never know, and you don't know what the wind's going to do to you on touchdown. You don't know. You know, you hit a, a an icy patch, you can't see because it's glare ice, or um, you know, a rut or something in the snow, and it, it's just not a good idea. It it helps if somebody's been able to do a braking friction test, or a runway test. friction test. Uh, most places that, that sounds like a very sophisticated test. Yeah. I, most I, most places don't have that equipment. Most places don't have that equipment. Most places do have a pickup truck that somebody can drive up and down the runway a couple of times and find out whether there's any patchy ice on it. And, I've and when, seen when places Leroy, do that. When Leroy radios you back on the CTAF and says, "Hey, that was a lot of fun. Come on in. <laughs> Go somewhere else." But we we had a north facing hangar out at Augusta, Kansas, when we still had a plane out there, and uh, but our hangar doors were uh, uh, sliders, two doors that kind of slid off to the side and nested one behind the other. And we had the same experience with ice, melting water, snow, and ice in the roller track, the top one and the bottom one. So after a storm uh, that left any kind of frozen precip on the roof of the hangar or on the ground uh, approximate to the door, uh, I always tried to call them 48 hours in advance and say, that's going to have to be open and the airplane out on this date about this time. And they would spend free time going down there, chipping it out. And an occasion, one occasion, they went down there with about three great big propane torches and an acetylene uh, gouging torch and literally melted the ice out of the bottom runners, got the doors open, and uh, said, if it's all right with you, we're going to leave them open because it had already frozen back over the track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so. Going down to Jeffersonville, Indiana, uh, about five or six years ago, uh, flew in there ahead of Christmas, and while there, we got about a 16, 17-inch layer of precip on the ground and it started out uh, with pebbly freezing rain, kind of textured and crunchy Uh, then about 12 inches of snow topped off by an ice storm so we had all these different textures and by the time I needed to leave uh, which worked out to be a couple of days late the airport had and I was in a hangar fortunately in a heated hangar but the uh, FBO called and told me that they would need 24 hours notice of when I was leaving because in plowing the ramp clear, they had built big mounds in front of some of the hangars and they were moving those mounds as needed. And this was the operational consideration that I'd never really thought of. There was so much snow that they had to push off these great big ramps. This is an airport with a 7,000-foot runway and, you know, many, many acres of ramp because it's got two FBOs and a helicopter operation, three or four big corporate hangars. Uh, We're talking about hundreds of thousands of square feet of ramp space and runways to clear off. The way they mounded snow up 
and created tunnels where there were supposed to be taxiways between areas that they didn't plow. You couldn't see the runway taxiing on the taxiway. Mm-hmm. So you had no idea if there was anything. It, it, it was hard to see up uh, over some of the uh, uh, ridges, it, what would be arriving traffic on the downwind. The ridges were too high. So you really didn't get an That's eyeball on smart. traffic. If there was anybody out there not talking, uh, you didn't know about it until you got down to the run-up pad, which fortunately had a, a, a view of only about half the runway. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of strange taxiing through there and hoping that another airplane didn't come off a taxiway and turn down right nose to nose because there was no place to turn around. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, yeah, so flying in the wintertime is it's just a whole different experience. One that I'm not, as we've talked about before, I'm not real familiar with because I haven't done a lot of winter flying between my California days and, and just plain not liking winter. I tend to hide out, but... Uh, but it's it's kind of interesting. Um, before we move any further here, uh, because it looks like even David has forgotten tonight, but I haven't. Uh, I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you <laughs> from <laughs> the home office here in Dover, New Hampshire. That's that's uh, worth a couple of shikas. Where we, where like I said, we we actually got a glancing blow. This big storm that uh, that uh, even as as near south as Boston got a lot more snow than we did. But uh, but we were just the northern edge of it. We got about five or six or seven inches or so, and wasn't a big deal wasn't a big deal. Speaking of snow, um, and maybe this is more appropriate for a shout-out, but I didn't write it down, and I might forget it. Um, I heard this uh, over the last couple of days that uh, Sanford, Maine, Southern Maine Aviation, has announced the date of their annual ski plane fly-in, speaking of snow. And uh, they're going to, on January, whatever the Saturday is, it's like the 23rd. I'm looking for my calendar right now. Let's see here. That rings right, because that's the ski plane fly-in at Oshkosh. Oh, is it really? Yeah, and it, so. yeah, and it, and it's also uh, as you pointed out uh, in a posting uh, the same weekend as uh, Sebring's LSA Expo. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, where uh, there probably won't be any snow. That's yeah. We're, so we're counting uh, on that. January twenty third. Anyway, it's up here in the uh, Northeast. Who's interested uh, could check out the uh, sea, ski plane fly-in at uh, Sanford, Maine. How um, that's cool. Two ski plane fly-ins about a thousand miles apart. So that's probably uh, Sanford and Oshkosh, and in Oshkosh, if you show up, you want to be sure and get to the organized part of it because that's uh, Audrey Pobrezny's birthday festival celebration. Yeah, oh. they'll be serving chili and birthday cake for anybody that shows up. That's so. right, and free snow cones. Yeah, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do because I'm still toying with the idea of going down there to come to go to the uh, Sebring LSA Expo, but that's probably a story for another day. What else we got going on here? Let's see now. Um, Oh, there's a list. So um, we have we have off-field landings galore this week. Um, the first of them uh, is related to uh, fairly not- well, I think it's notorious, a fairly beloved uh, aviation uh, activity. Um, this is the uh, I think they call it Operation Migration. This yep. is the uh, this is the uh, operation that is helping the endangered uh, uh, um, what are they geese of some sort. Um, see. 
whooping cranes or something like that. I'm I'm not a bird person. I apologize. I know people. Some people take this very very seriously. Um, they use an ultralight um, to uh, to uh, lead the way and to encourage these birds to uh, re to kind of rediscover their migratory paths. And this has been going on for quite some time now. Um, it was made famous, I think, notorious um, by the movie that glamorized the little girl flying the ultralight, which we've talked about this before. I and I guess you guys disagree with me. I think that, but I think that it's a terrible mistake to glamorize the idea of kids flying airplanes by themselves. She was she was twelve. Yeah, I know, right? Anyways, they still do well, that. I'm sure it's not flown by kids. Back it's, up a second, Jack. What? Back up a second. Let's, let's define kid. Okay. Too young to be a licensed pilot. I, I, you know, this goes... Let's come back to that someday. Yeah, okay, we'll come back to that someday. I, I, Anyways, in any event, the, the Operation Migration, um, all in all, a really good thing. Um, and But this year they had, uh, and, and they have a chase plane. Um, apparently this year a volunteer uh, 182, I believe, um, that kind of follows along and gives support and so forth and so on. And uh, the story here from EAA.org says on December 4th, a Cessna 182 that was flying, quote, top cover for Operation Migration. Migration developed engine trouble and was forced to land in a plowed field in southern Illinois. The two volunteer pilots, Don and Paula Lounsbury, EA member uh, 168046 of Wyndham Center, Ontario, were not injured when their engine when their airplane flipped on its back after the nose gear sunk into the freshly tilled ground made soft from recent rains. Freshly tilled ground made soft from recent rains. It's like poetry. Anyways, um, so uh, congratulations to them for getting the airplane on the ground safely. And uh, they apparently were not hurt at all. Uh, were able to get out and walk away. And there's a really cool picture of them standing. It looks like maybe they're standing in the same field. And they're smiling at the camera. Like, you know, and they're right above their head in this story. There's a picture of their poor airplane on its back. I'm not sure if these two pictures go together really well. Maybe they weren't taken at the same time or the same location. But uh, but good for them for uh, managing to put it down safely and uh, and walk away. Um, do you think? Do you guys know anything about this operation migration thing? The, the kid thing aside, let's just put that aside. I'm just talking about the the the, the general well, program. I've, I've, I've met here sometime. I met the more because he's done some work. Uh, Who has? I believe on James. James has. Yeah, uh, Dave. What were you going to say? Well, met the, the the people that started it a few years ago. They were doing the uh, air show circuit. About the time that uh, the movie Fly Away Home was in circulation. Uh, and uh, nice folks, uh, amazing thing that they accomplished. Uh, and this has been kind of a tough year. Whooping Crane got shot in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had their support airplane, uh, you know, no, do a, a nose flip. Uh, and somebody broke into their facilities up in Wisconsin and damaged a bunch of their gear. Uh, so and they're intercepting the the data feed from drones. I, I you know <laughs> what's what's next? Yeah, I know it's those damn whipping whooping cranes. Uh, they are uh, beautiful. I've seen them down in Florida a couple of times, uh, coming out of Winter Haven on back roads to get up to Interstate Four. To well, it was outside Winter Haven to get up to Interstate Four to go into Orlando for an NBAA about three or four years ago. Uh, there were two or three every morning near the same bend in this county road that I was uh, tracking every morning. Magnificent on their feet. I mean, gee, many they're over five feet tall. 
Yeah. Uh, it's just remarkable to see a bird that's as tall as a rental car. <laughs> that's your measure, huh? <clears throat> as tall as a rental car. Well, you should... when it, you know, you, we we know what the typical rental car is. It's uh, and I'm not talking about the suburban or Tahoe rental car, but the Econo box. You know, the Econo box DLX that uh, most of us wind up with most of the time. Yeah. So I, I guess I've never really understood this. I never, I didn't actually see the movie. So, um, but the birds think the ultralight is criticizing it, and you haven't seen. You've been criticizing the message without ever having seen this. It's not the message I'm criticizing. It's the no, no, we aren't. Well, I mean, either. the idea of Jack, you know, the, Jack, I'm a Jiminy, Jiminy Christmas. So the, the, the birds think that the ultralight is a big bird. Yeah, and it's like mom, and they just yeah. follow it. And and they do a lot of conditioning with the birds that keeps keeps the birds basically from uh, bonding on the idea uh, bonding on a human being using let's hand be, puppets and models and things like that. Yeah, Jeff. Let's be clear. Even even as big as whooping cranes are, they don't have a gigantic brain pan. <laughs> I see. <laughs> okay. Um, and probably not very good hearing, or they would recognize the engine on the ultra. Uh, I guess you know they they okay. Um, moving on, we got uh, we've been Thank talking God, in so thirsty in recent months about uh, recent episodes, recent weeks about ways to finance uh, your flight training and uh, in the forums, uh, a listener who goes by the name of Pro Consul uh, said uh, gave us a lead to a an outfit that uh, he says. Uh, uh, I apologize if this isn't posted before. However, here's a link to a website slash company that my flight school works with to help students finance their flight training. It's pilotfinance.com. And, uh, David, you, you apparently took a look at this. Uh, did you get some impression out, off of it? Well, I can't really, you know, uh, uh, offer any kind of recommendation for or cautionary against. Uh, I did take a look at their website. I looked at uh, the kind of money that... Uh, that they uh, they they want to charge for the money that they make available and the terms, and it certainly wasn't unreasonable or out of line. Uh, and they say that they've got working relationship with a lot of flight schools and, and flight instructors, where you don't have to come to them. You find the flight instructor that does business with these guys, and that flight instructor will help you originate the loan with this operation. The thing that did jump out at me is that in the information on their website about learning to fly uh, and the options available, uh, they did stress that the more frequently you fly, the quicker you get your license, which should be you know a logical a point A to point B conclusion, but also the fewer hours you'll wind up paying for to make the journey from point A to point B which is in line with what we've said, which is in line with what a lot of people recommend, which is doesn't seem to sink in with the people say, well, I figure if I, if, if I can uh, uh, start paying to fly an hour a week, I'll be able to get this done in you know, eight or nine months. And like, wait a minute, why not wait? Don't spend the money. Save those hours a week in rental until you can afford to do it in two or three months so you got the money right. laid back because you have to knock 10 or 12 or 
even 15% of the flying hours off the time you, you'll do it if you fly two and preferably three times a week. You're flying three times a week, doing an hour and a half or so per session, you're going to progress so much more quickly than flying an hour a week, uh, spending an hour with the instructor. You'll spend 20 minutes of that hour every week kind of re reminding yourself, relearning what the last lesson was that you also only got really 40 minutes on. So, One of the things, that, just looking at these numbers, and, and I, would, I would repeat that I don't think anyone here is endorsing this program. Uh, we're just looking at the numbers here. And, and uh, um, looking at um, the, the, the table they've got on their website, um, three scheduled lessons per week, which is a good target. That's like every other day and, and maybe twice on the weekend or something like that. Um, they're looking at, let's say, a, a, a program cost of $7,000, which strikes me as a little high, actually, to get to private, but who knows. Um, they're calling for 48 month, uh, 48 payments, 48 monthly payments, four years, um, and under $200 a month, $198 a month. Um, that's like, you know, a car payment. Yeah, that's less um, than a car payment. It's much less than a car payment. And, you know, you, a lot of this is in, in your control in the sense that um, if you, if you, the more lessons you take, the quicker you'll get through this. And, and the, the sooner you'll get your ticket and the, and the less money you'll have to outlay all, all together. Um, if you have the time, that's, that's one thing. Um, uh, if you can, if you have the time to schedule three uh, lessons a week, and that's mainly, you know, figure um, 30, 45 minutes to an hour or so to, to get your stuff together and get to the airport, a two-hour lesson, maybe longer, and then another, you know, 30, 45 minutes to an hour uh, on the back end to get back where you're going. That's, you know, obviously a significant uh, uh, commitment in, in time. Um, it, you know, if you've got the money to um, um, to make these kinds of payments, you you may or may not have the time. It's it's kind of a, a vicious circle, a catch twenty two, if you will. Um, but certainly, this is is one option for for, for financing your flight training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, again, though, let me emphasize: we're not endorsing this. We don't. We yeah, don't we we don't. Right, we, right. It's just like, take a look, can, see what you think. There are there are other finance options available. Uh, I know. Uh, some independent flight schools and some affiliated flight school operations that uh, have uh, have options, and you know, and, and don't overlook the idea of saying, "Okay, I can finally afford to do that." But rather than doing it right now in an hour a week or an hour and a half a week, I want to take that money that I suddenly have free to learn to fly, and and put it in the bank for six months right. or seven months, and shoot for doing this. My recommendation, most of the Northern Hemisphere, from, uh, say, Easter to Labor Day weekend, if you could focus your flight instruction somewhere in that period, you've got so much more daylight to work with for the fundamental instruction. Uh, I mean, to the point where, depending on what time you have to be at the office or on the job, uh, I know guys that have... uh, that had nine o'clock start times. They were doing six thirty lessons in the uh, summertime because it was just legal sunrise in the morning. 
six thirty in the morning. Uh, they'd fly until about eight thirty, or they'd take instruction until about eight thirty. Uh, grab a carryout breakfast and be in the office at nine nine thirty. Do their day's work. Uh, then maybe the next day go out after work, where they're getting to the airport at six or six thirty, and they're still light until nine thirty, quarter till ten in some parts of the country where they can get in another hour and a half, two-hour lesson in the evening. But spread it out over the week like that. Uh, if you could do three a week, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, uh, you know, you're going to rip through it quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, so paying cash is, should be considered a uh, another viable finance option. If you find your budget in a position to do it once a week, bank it until you can do it three times a week. Then go for it. Well, and the, the the point you made at the top of that, uh, I think, is is very important too. If you can afford, you know, to pay off a note over forty eight months at two hundred or so bucks a month, you can afford to put two hundred bucks a month aside in a savings account uh, until you have enough money to go get the training. Yeah. So you're going to do the training at the end of the period instead of the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, it depends, you know what what blows up your skirt. I mean, if you if you're in a hurry, um, uh, find some financing. Um, if you're not, and if it's kind of thing where, you know, you don't want to dive into it until you're absolutely positively sure that you can you can afford it. Well, you start sticking some money aside. Maybe it's not two hundred a month. Maybe it's five hundred a month. Um, and uh, you go out to the flight training school and say, "All right, what's this going to cost if I, you know, dedicate my, you know, my evenings during the summer or my mornings during the summer, and, and you know, at least uh, you know, one or two lessons on the weekends? And what's this going to take me? What's this going to cost?" And uh, you know, you'll get a range of of, uh, of responses, but uh, generally those are fairly uh, fairly well informed responses. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, just do it. Do just it. Just go do it. Just go do it. So, so this resonates with me, and I'll get it, be in and out of this in, in 30 seconds. Yeah, I'll believe uh, that one I hear. Go ahead. Well, we had a, a, a situation arise where two financial obligations went away within a month of one another that freed up a significant amount of monthly cash for us. Uh, did the math decided to buy the airplane. We bought the airplane. The airplane payments were $249 a month. Uh, and I was spending uh, right at $600 a month on flight instruction, $700 a month. Now, this was back when flight instructors were 25 bucks an hour. But when that cash became available, I waited two months, had enough money in the bank to go through the whole syllabus uh, four weeks, 43 hours, and that included paying for the check ride. And I'd made two airplane payments in the process and still had the airplane when all was said and done. It couldn't have been done more inexpensively than that system. Uh, and when we sold the airplane, we got a lot of that money back. So, uh, But in my case, the cash suddenly became available. And rather than doing something else with it, I turned it immediately toward the, 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 the pilot license bank account. And in three months from when the cash became available, we had an airplane and a license. So uh, it 
it is doable. And we had an airplane payment. You know, I admit that. But, man, it beat the hell out of running. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Minute and a half, by and the we, way. We've talked about that in recent episodes, too. Right. Yep. But no one's counting. But no one's counting. Well, I am, apparently. Uh, so in a story that continues okay. to uh, be just about as weird as it possibly can be, uh, we have some more news on the uh, the Northwest, uh, what was it, flight? What's the flight number? 144 or something like that. Uh, 188. 188. Northwest 188. This is the aircraft that overshot its destination. The uh, flight number which will live in... Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's been, I don't know if there's actual testimony happening or if they're just collecting information, but some information has been released, which is sort of another story, kind of, I find it curious that they're releasing this information. I thought they didn't no. do that. If I may if I just jump in, the, the, the MTSB yeah. released a bunch of factual information last week on okay. this episode. A couple of interesting where, things. That's all this new yeah coming from. yeah a couple of interesting things here first of all it's just like uh apparently it really was the flight attendants who kind of woke up the pilots and woke up in quotes as you know metaphorically speaking um they uh the uh, flight attendants realized that things were somehow running late and they didn't quite understand so they called the cockpit and they said and and in a in a in a, in a just marvelous marvelous application of tact all right they didn't say what the heck's going on they you know or are we late or did you guys screw up they just said when do you expect to arrive all right and uh <laughs> timothy chains uh, quoting from a story from uh, associated press uh on uh, yahoo.com uh timothy cheney the captain of flight 188 said he looked up from his laptop to discover that they were no there was no longer any flight information programmed into the airbus a320's computer he said his navigation system so showed duluth minnesota off to his left and eau claire wisconsin ahead on the right oops so uh I, I don't know. There's another story. He would story. have been in Appleton not long after that. I know, really. Rip and do the do the arrival, and then you're all set. Um, so I don't know. Pretty weird. They were just playing with their computers, and uh, well, I, the, this information also confirmed an, e an email that I got several times. It was circulating yeah, around, supposedly from a guy who would talked to a friend of the captain's who said that. Uh, that uh, they really were engrossed, and the reason they didn't catch the radio calls was that they were uh, the, the comm radio. They'd switched it to the wrong frequency. Yeah, I'm uh, still. I think the email said Winnipeg or something like that. Uh, well, apparently, yeah, Winnipeg. Sound. Information to that effect, whether it was Winnipeg, I don't know, but information to the effect that they had the wrong frequency in the comm is also part of the factual. And I still sit here and go. Wow, you all no, that time a, and you didn't a, get a radio call, you didn't figure on that. Right, right. Now there's another story floating that's around. That's still a whiskey tango foxtrot from me. Yeah, yeah me, too. Oh, me and too. I've seen the email and I I've I've read this this story. I uh I'm sorry, but I just it just doesn't add up to me. Yeah. Now there's another story floating around, um and I apologize, I don't have a link to it. I can't I don't even have it in front of me here, but um to the effect that um, there was some issue with the data recorders not recording everything. There was some odd sequence of events after landing. Or, or Do you know what I'm talking about? Does this story ring a bell to you? There was a the, – the CVR breaker – oh, I know what it is. Here it is. I'll, I'll read it right now. Um, the pilot said that – you know this is – um, the FAA said – no, that's not it. Um, 
there was some odd sequence of events that was not usual and it caused the, the, less the data FO to be preserved. Apparently, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I know what it is now. The um, uh, ACARS messages. Um, Northwest dispatchers ultimately sent 15 text messages to the cockpit. This is using the ACARS system, presumably. Um, the messages asking the pilots to contact controllers, but there was no response. Um, I'm informed from either this story or other stories that instead of a, uh, a gong or a bell or, or some auditory alert that an ACARS message has arrived in the cockpit on these 320s, that they have a, an idiot light that flashes for a brief period of time. Um, pilots said that they did not notice the messages until after they reestablished contact. The FO, um, uh, Richard Cole, uh, said that he later inadvertently pushed the delete all button, erasing the messages. Oops. Um, oops. Um, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing, I, I, just, I just find it implausible at best that a professional flight crew, and both of these guys were well experienced. These were not new hires. Uh, this yeah. was not a 500-hour FO. Uh, both of these guys were well experienced. I had a military background in, in, in thousands of hours um, here on this airplane. I, I just find it implausible that they can drone along for over an hour and not talk to anybody and not think about not talking to anybody and all of a sudden be shocked when they look up and there's no nav data on their screens. It just doesn't jive. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I I still think I I you know I think it's not too late for them to just say they were asleep after all. All right, just go back to the, they were asleep. This is all just a bad dream. They would have been in less trouble if they just said I, they fall well, asleep. Yes and no, they would have been. I, you know, if they're going to stick with this story, they, I mean, and it looks like they're sticking with this story. Okay, um, that, that's fine. If it, some there is speculation saying that. The timing on this really sucks. Uh, of course, it sucked for everybody, but um, presuming for the moment that they were indeed, uh, uh, both of them had fallen asleep, uh, as, as anybody who's fallen or who's followed, I should say, um, the FAA's uh, ongoing rulemaking on fatigue and uh, um, um, how to deal with that uh, in this day and age. They, they appeared to be on the verge of making it legal for one pilot to get a catnap in the cockpit. Um, so the theory goes, if in fact the, the crew had fallen asleep, um, this would kind of blow out that, that particular move by uh, the FAA and make it untenable for some period of time. Um, whether... Uh, that was, first of all, presuming for the moment that, um, in fact, some of this or, or, or most of this, this um, reported story is, is fabricated, um, there would have to be some collusion somewhere for them to try to cover it up in this fashion. And, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's either way. Pretty crazy stuff. It is pretty I, crazy. I, yeah. Well, I, I assume the process is still ongoing of them them uh, appealing the license suspension. Huh? That's going yes. to play out for a while. That'll, that'll play out for a long while. They'll probably sit on that until uh, you know, a while. Yeah. 
Here's a cool story, not a very big story, but a really cool story. This is reading from, uh, apparently this was a story that was on NPR, on one of NPR's programs, but it's on their, in text form, it's on their website. Uh, quoting from the story, a few weeks ago, Anne Osmer left her home in Hendersonville, North Carolina, went to a local airfield, climbed, climbed into the cockpit of a Diamond DA-20, and took off on her first ever solo flight. Nothing unusual in that, except Osmer is 83 years old and didn't take her first flying lesson, lesson until she was 80. Uh, quoting Osmer, she says, I didn't really think about soloing. I just wanted to see how far I could stretch my mind, see how much I could accomplish, she told NPR. Uh, Osmer, well, it's just a great story. There's more to it. And uh, I just want to, yeah, cool. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I give it a little more prominence than our normal shout outs, but I just think I, I you know, I hope I'm this adventurous and, and uh, exploring new things and trying new things when I'm 83 years old. That'll be pretty cool. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, absolute hat off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, to uh, put it in the vernacular of my daughter and granddaughter, you go, girl. Uh, <laughs> How about you, Dave? Were you still trying new things when you were eighty-three? <laughs> uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't. I didn't get a private pilot's license till I was ninety-three. So, <laughs> yeah, no, this is terrific. I, uh, you know, it just goes to show you, it's not a, it's not an age-related thing. It's, uh, it, you know, learn to hang glide from some guy named Orville and yeah. Curl. So. Uh, I can see that I'm backing myself. I'm painting myself into a corner about this young pilot thing. Maybe I should just be quiet and. Uh, and, and you should see the movie. I, I'm sure it's a feel-good movie of the year. I'm sure that it was just very, very heartwarming and and insanely dangerous. Um, <laughs> what's next here? Uh, I'm getting all lost here. Uh, Jeb, I, I like the way he qualified that. Jeb, so you, you, you pointed us to a story that sounded intriguing, uh, yet it's on New York Times' website, and it's behind their uh, registration uh, barrier, so I couldn't read the story. Of autopilots, pilots... You're, you're and, not registered for the New York Times website? Dogs. I, I think I am, but I'm too lazy to find the information that I use to sign up. So tell us what the story is. This this is kind of a follow-up to the Northwest 188 story. Uh, this is a, a uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times written on this on December 16 by a retired uh, Pan Am pilot uh, who makes the the case and I would think uh, it's a good case and, and it's, I think it's a uh, uh, another facet of this overall Northwest 188 uh, story talking about how automation has uh, reduced pilots situational awareness um, he, he tells a story of how when he was, you know, flying a line and, on 707s and I'm sure other equipment that, you know, they had a three-man crew, um, especially on the transatlantic or transoceanic flights, they were, you know, they were busy. Uh, the engineer, the flight engineer is busy the whole time. So much, so, so much less automation was available to them. They were, you know, using a sextant, uh, and sometimes Loran to plot courses, and, and these Loran boxes of the day, they didn't have this, the databases in that in them that even we had in the, in the 90s in some of these uh, some in, in GA airplanes. Um, so they're plotting their positions on charts, and they have to do this you know periodically, like maybe every 10, 15 minutes or so. So they stayed busy. Nowadays, of course, we have the moving maps, we have uh, um, the computers that you know alert us if there's something out of whack in, in one of the systems or or um, uh, navigation's uh, wrong or something like that. And he makes the point that uh, you know this is all of this is perhaps not a good thing 
uh, we've we've you know been there before on in in this industry talking about uh, have we become too automated and too dependent on the automation. Um, he doesn't really I don't know that he really offers uh, that many solutions here other than you know wake up and smell the coffee guys. Uh, but it just reminded me of the old joke about how in the future there will be an autopilot, a pilot, and a dog. The autopilot will fly the airplane. The pilot will be there in case you know something happens to the autopilot. And the dog will be there to bite the man if he tries to touch the autopilot. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, you trust these things. Huh? I've been working with computers too long to really kind of let them be too far out of my reach. Well, right? You know, in, 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 in you know, true confessions, you know, I, I've never, you know, been out of touch for, you know, 77 minutes or however, you know, more than an hour on any of my flights. Yes, I will. I, I you know, when I'm in cruise at altitude and, you know, over, over uh, shall we say, rural territory or something, less, less populated territory, I'll sit back and, you know, I'll fiddle with the iPod or I'll, you know, maybe do some bookkeeping or, or something like that, and I won't pay that much attention to, um, you know, where the airplane is going or exactly where I am or, you know, uh, ask me what the oil pressure is, and I'll tell you, well, it's it's got to be good because the engine hasn't quit yet, and I'll, you know, but I'll only do that for, you know, maybe five minutes at a time. I won't do it for 77 minutes at a time, and I will certainly be aware or, or uh, uh, cognizant of... Uh, how, how long ago it was since I heard of uh, somebody on the frequency or how long ago it was that I talked to somebody. And uh, it's just an order of magnitude uh, difference. A lot of long trips I used to entertain myself by doing uh, cross Oh, no, 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 don't tell us VORs. that, Dave. Don't tell us that. Yeah, really, God, you're no, don't tell too. us that. <laughs> I'm sorry, David. What were you, what were you doing? <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 nah, never mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you were about to say oh, crossword sorry. puzzles, maybe? Cross, uh, cross fixes from different VORs. Oh, okay. Oh, so you were really flying the airplane then. I mean, you well, I, I did so much stuff, uh, you know, thanks to even a VFR GPS in an IFR environment. Uh, uh, the uh, nice folks at ATC were confident enough in me and the GPS, VFR though it was, that uh, I wasn't filing slash golf, uh, couldn't do that. But I could put in flight plans that would take me, you know, 300, 350, 400 miles on a single leg uh -huh. between a, a, a fix that was in the system and another fix in the system, usually off the Victor Airways. But those Victor Airways being defined by, you know, uh, VORs largely along the way, I'd be flying along kind of parallel to the sawtooth line of a Victor going in my general direction. And with enough VORs to pick from at, you know, 9,000, 10,000, 11,000 feet, it was kind of fun to sit there with the, uh, uh, the, the VFR chart or plate, the uh, charts. I'll get it straight. Pick out the VORs. I'd use the GPS data to do that. I'd highlight it. I'd get the fake frequency. I'd tune in one. I'd tune in another. I'd center the radio radials up, get the uh, compass headings, and then do a little plot with the uh, protractor off the uh, off the VORs spot on the map, and get an intersection and 
then I'd try to identify how close I was to actually being there visually out the window before I'd really let myself look at the GPS and go, yep, that's pretty that's, – if I could get within a couple of miles, I considered it pretty good. Yeah. Um, well, you know, early, in the early days of flying with a GPS or a Lorana, I did the same thing. And even today, I will um, quite often, you know, just for grins and just to keep myself occupied, and sometimes just to make sure the equipment's still working, is, is fire up the number two in the DME and, uh, you know, tune a, tune a nearby VOR and, and, and make sure that everything's still there and working and kind of, you know, confirm what uh, the magic is telling me. Um, that's to me. That's just being conscientious. Yeah, it, 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 and it's not a bad muscle to exercise on a regular basis for right. the off chance that that wonderful satellite-based, uh, highly precise area nav system should not be available for any reason. That you could still figure out how to get from where you are to where you want to be using what there is in ground-based equipment. So. Ohio silver, uh, and when the same when the same when the same guys who are intercepting the drone data start intercepting and jamming the GPS data, where are you going to be? <laughs> That's right. Oh, the vor or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and and really the question is, where are you going to be? Quite literally. Yeah, I'm not. De- I'm definitely not going to be up the airway without a chart. We've got another, uh, yet another off-field landing of the week. Um, this is a pretty dramatic one, actually. Uh, this is, uh, we were first called, uh, this was called to our attention by a listener in the forums, and uh, I'm reading from another organization's forums here. Let's see now. This is the other organization P-P-R-U-N-E. is PPRUNE, Professional Pilots Rumor Network. Uh, I don't quite get the context of that, but uh, it's PPRUNE.org. And uh, in one of the threads, they're talking. Actually, if yeah, Jack, if I may, Prune is one of the kind of go-to sites if you're interested in what the media is not talking about in the aftermath. Of yeah, it, uh, boy, major eight. Oh, really? Oh, really? I've never heard of it before. Okay. Well, they were discussing um, uh, a a ditching at sea uh, in the Irish Sea, obviously uh, near Great Britain, Um, a a lone pilot flying a twin, uh, let's see now, it's a a PA-30. Twin Comanche. And... uh, the uh, um, had engine troubles and uh, had to uh, ditch into the ocean and uh, was fortunate enough to be able to land near a uh, an oil platform uh, with its associated uh, service uh, boats apparently and uh, and uh, get picked up pretty quickly. Um, interestingly enough, the actual pilot, uh, a woman whose name I don't have in front of me, but who in this board goes by the name uh, Manx Ladybird, um, and uh, she actually uh, uh, very briefly, but but in really interesting tells a bit of her story about what happened i'm just reading a little part of it she said i did indeed ditch in the irish sea i was about 38 miles from iom when my right prop had a runaway it was over speeding in excess of 2800 rpm and i could not stabilize it the manifold pressure was low as well so i did not have much to play with i felt it was uncontrollable and i shut it down the PA-30 can fly perfectly well in one engine, so I descended to 4,000 feet to get out of the cloud layer and diverted to Blackpool. 
about six minutes into my diversion, my left engine lost power. My manifold pressure was down to 17 inches. I did all the checks and changed fuel tanks, cross-feed, electrics, boost pumps, etc. No go. Uh, D&D, which sounds to me from the context, what is D&D? That must be like air traffic control over there or something. Uh, D&D wanted me to try for Blackpool, 18 miles away, yeah. but I would not have reached there. I was near the oil rigs, so elected to land in the vicinity. I spotted the support ship and ditched near it. I got out and had to hold on to the life raft. Uh, there were no steps on the life raft, so, so there was no way to pull myself in. But then, uh, and now I'm paraphrasing, an oil rig helicopter uh, came over and hoisted her up, and they checked her out at the ho- hospital, and um, she was uh, fine. Uh, so it's it's quite a story. Um, and uh, congratulations to her for keeping her head about her and uh, and uh, um, getting down safely and near some help and uh, all all's well that ends well I guess. Have you heard anything more about this story or? Uh? I, I did see something um, somewhere prior to to I saw a picture of the airplane and, and just a, a quick news story and knowing that that um, everyone got out all right I didn't um, I didn't pay that much attention to it I did notice that it was a twin Comanche. Um, and, and you, what you're missing here is, um, the next to last line in her post, well, actually the last paragraph is, was there anything I would have done differently? No, I don't think so. I did everything I, I could think of to get my engines back. But once I had made the decision, I followed it through. Mm-hmm. Even having two engines doesn't always guarantee getting there, but someone was looking over my shoulder on Wednesday and I'm here to have Christmas with my family. Amen to that. And yep. that was yeah. the reason I followed this up on the forum site was uh, years ago when all my flying uh, constituted hang gliding time. Uh, I'd be hanging out at a launch site at some mountain site uh, where the tourists, the WAPOs, would come with some regularity. And it was always intrigued me to hear this common uh, idea. You know, I might try that uh, if I had an engine to get me out of trouble. And we used to like to tell them that engines don't get you into trouble. Engines don't get you out of trouble. Pilots do that. And you can't always count on the engine being there to get you out of trouble even when it might. Yeah. Yeah, so it's quite a story. Congratulations. I was, I'm looking at um, the original news story um, uh, from a news website, and it doesn't have the pilot's name act as well. So uh, we can't uh, congratulate her by name. But uh, but uh, Manx, uh, she goes by the name uh, Manx Ladybird uh, on uh, on PP Rune or Peeprune. Is that how do you say it, Jeb? I just call it Peeprune. Peeprune. Okay. And you uh, might take P-prune. a look at that and notice that that is a distinctly UK slash Europe oriented website. Uh, very heavily. Yes, uh, it's 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 UK oriented, but but it's it's mainly as I I would think of just European and international uh, in flavor. Yeah. They they certainly uh, discuss U.S. operations. A lot of Australian, um, African operations uh, also but it's it's mainly uh, european but that's okay because that's true. um i mean these guys there there I mean, there's a lot of experience on that on these forums um people flying airbus 340s and 74-4s and and you know all this kind of thing and and the people flying as in the well UK as you know and the flying the, in the, the GAA country you know, the, the 500 yeah, go, go ahead, Jim. As well as the 500-hour FO in the in the uh, in the in the uh, in the Islander, you know. So, um, 
to me, pea prune has has a lot of value, and uh, it's it's it was my go to side in the in the days and weeks immediately after Air France four four seven, for example. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah, they've just got a good lot of stuff there. And a lot of them. pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. I, I brought that up as a way of maybe helping uh, folks that might look at it understand why they do speak in a language uh, with some vernacular slightly different than ours. Yeah, yeah. David, you call our attention to two different uh, stories recently uh, about uh, uh, new advances, new milestones in the area of sport pilot training, I believe they are. Well, it's been a recurring topic on the on the forums uh, uh, pages uh, under light sport about the, the difficulty, sometimes outright inability to find places that teach uh, the sport pilot syllabus. Uh, access to airplanes to rent, sometimes the outright opposition or undermining, y'all, no, you don't want that sport pilot license, son. What you want is a real pilot pilot's license. Well, but I can only afford to do this much. Well, then you come back when you can afford to do all of it. Uh, that kind of stupid mentality. And here were a couple of milestones uh, in the last week, or I consider them milestones, where uh, – well, let's see, several Cessna pilot centers, that's their Cessna's franchise flight school operation, added light sport training, uh, sport pilot training under the FAR 141 flight school designations that they operate under. And that's all in advance of them starting to get sky catchers, the first of which was delivered uh, this past Friday to the uh, Mrs. Uh, Jack Pelton, uh, the head of Cessna's wife. And in uh, Air Fleet Training Systems in, uh, what is it, Fairfield, New Jersey, Pensacola Aviation Center, uh, Snohomish Flying Service, and uh, Tradewinds. Those are all the CPCs. And in ST Aviation, opened a light sport aircraft training academy at their operation in Mount Vernon, Illinois. So here we have two different uh, takes on uh, formalized sport pilot training in, in a week. Uh, you know, folks, it's it's going to happen. You just don't roll out a whole new segment of an industry in even, you know, three or four years. It takes time for it to catch on, to build up infrastructure, to get the people. Uh, and people are coming around. We're starting to see schools come around. So, uh Hopefully, this kind of stuff will mean that it's going to be spreading further to where all of us can have access to it without you know, having to travel hours and, and, and make it inaccessible. So that was it. Cool. Very cool. Jeb, anything you want to add to that? No, yeah, just uh, times two on what Dave said. Um, yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day. The, the light sport industry in this, in this country is just barely five years old. Um, and I know in in the, in the D.C. area, there's uh, I forget the name the exact name of the school. It's I think it's Chesapeake Sport Pilot uh, um, Center or something like that. It's uh, uh, it's not aligned with Cessna. Um, they have um, I can't even think of the the, the brand of um, of uh, LSA they have. But uh, um, again, you know, referring back to the D.C. pilots list, there's a woman Helen Wood. I've flown with her before. Um, who was a CFI uh, with them, and uh, is is you know hyping this the, the LSA experience and and uh, uh, the training uh, capabilities that they have and and how they can get a 
someone a pilot's license for a lot less money than it used to cost to go all the way through to a private. Um, it is happening. It is out there, and uh, it's all good. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I mentioned earlier we have a, a third off-field landing of the week, but I think I'm going to hold it until uh, it's an embarrassment of riches this week. So let's just yeah, hold, let's just hold it for next week, and uh, we'll drop it in next time. Um, but uh, it has to do with not fixed-wing aircraft. Ooh, it's, it's a teaser. Uh, oh, shout-outs. That's out. a cheating. That's I'd, cheating. I'd, Kind of already did my shout-out. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've been sneaking the shout-outs in as we went along, too. Um, one thing I just want to call attention to a cool video that I found or that a listener called our attention to. Uh, it's a little little video clip of someone who was getting a ride uh, with the Blue Angels. And uh, it's... Uh, it's I smell it's, Tupper. Yeah, I know. I don't think this was Tupper, but, you know, he's working on it. Uh, he's more of a Thunderbirds guy, though. He's he's Air Force, not... Uh, I, I don't I, think I, I did the Blue Angels. I think they're... They, they they do it well. Yeah. So there's a, a video of a person getting a ride of the Blue Angels uh, where they form up with the uh, second ship, uh, which goes inverted above them. Uh, and it's really kind of a cool shot, um, reminiscent of uh, a, a similar but fictional uh, image from Top Gun. Um, but in this case, it's for real. And uh, you see they were, they, were, are, they were communicating. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly right. You see this; uh, these two aircraft really close together, one of them upside down and one of them right side up. So it's a cool piece of video. Um, I don't think I can give you the link here because it's kind of a complex link. Um, but it'll be in the show notes. But it'll be in the show notes, and uh, it's it's a pretty cool, pretty cool little piece of video. Um, and uh, I think that's everything I've got here. Uh, you guys got any shout-outs before we wrap this thing up? Uh, Mary, happy ho ho. Uh, that's Christmas right. This is, is going to yeah, come along before right. this yeah. comes. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've promised people that this episode will be out on the net uh, prior to Christmas, um, but not by much. So uh, um, those of you who are <laughs> listening prior to Christmas, uh, happy, happy, and, uh, and, uh, and happy New Year, and we'll talk to you uh, on the other side. Um, and that's it for me. You know, yeah. we, hope that, we hope that Santa brings you whatever you wanted from Garmin, um, Bose, Honeywell, uh, uh, Lightspeed, Honeywell, Sporties. I'll just uh, add one of each. Sporties, yeah, just one of each. Sporties, yeah. JPI. And and Santa Santa knows which one I'm wishing for, and he doesn't even have to worry about the anti icing fluid. I can get it on sale. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Thank you, boys. Jeb's and, and, always. Or you can just you know sit it sit it until spring and make airplane noise. <laughs> there you, you know? go. There you go. Thank you, Jeb. It's always great talking with you. Jeb Burnside is an oh, aviation journalist uh, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. I get it. It's a twin. Uh, I keep expecting people... you to say currently serving time. And, oh, no way. Where can people find you, Jeb, on the Internet? Oh, on the on the Internet. Oh, yeah, that thing. Um, let's see. Intertube. Uh, aviation, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Um, JEBurnside.com. Occasionally on avweb.com and occasionally on uh, aviationconsumer.com. Cool. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, uh, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, you can try avbuyer.com, aea.net, davehigdon.biz. Google me and read something out of the archives. Be entertained at how long I've been doing this. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> since your early 80s. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Big thanks, as always, to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. That's Scoffrejet in the forum. Say hi to him. Thanks also to uh, Mike Morgan and Roy Searle and all the other listeners who have created the uh, very excellent show opening disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. Hey, David, what were you going to say? Ho, ho, merry, merry, happy, happy. You think there's a reason why Santa Claus is so old. That's because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Merry Christmas. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. You'll have a great holiday. TTFN. Of autopilots, pilots. You're, you're and not registered for the New York Times website? Dogs. I, I think I am, but I'm too lazy to find the information that I use to sign up. So tell us what the story is. All right. Let me. might want to push pause here while I refresh my memory. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Pause. This, I need to check my front door. I'll be right back. Oh, okay. okay. I guess we're taking a break then. Take, I'm taking a break. All right. I have a crazy urge. No, I should say this on the podcast. I have a crazy urge to go yeah. fly the Valor, the uh, the tube and fabric uh, LSA up at South Southern Maine, which oh. is crazy for someone who doesn't oh. like the cold under the best of circumstances. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, you know, opt for something with a canopy that you can close. And you Well, know, no, I mean, it's got door. Up. Everything closes, but I'm sure it's not the most wind, you know, uh, 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 you know, sealed kind of thing, and then it is just fabric, so I'm sure it gets a little chilly in there. I, I have no idea whether it must have. I, it could have a heater, heater. I don't know if it does, but no reason why it couldn't have some sort of heater. Uh, but I was thinking, if the weather's supposed to turn in a couple more days, and like Friday, well, on Friday's Christmas. Anyway, sometime maybe Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or something like that. It's supposed to get all the way up to the 40s. Woohoo! Wow, Sorry, guys. 40s. It's <laughs> Yeah, somebody somebody walked through my neighbor's yard carrying a little light about five minutes ago, and I've been looking out the other window and never saw him go past the other side of the house. So, uh huh. And Charlotte didn't lose her mind. Well, she was up, kind of peering intently out the door, which is when I decided I should check. Yeah. All right. So, Jeb, what's the story with this uh, of autopilots, pilots, this, and dogs? This is kind of a follow up to the Northwest 188 story. Uh, this is a